Post Reports is brought to you by Purina. Purina's vision is to create a future where every pet has a loving home and a healthy life, and they're making it happen through their nutritious pet foods as well as their Pet Finder platform, which matches pets with families. Learn more at Purina.com cares. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. It's Robert Samuels from The Washington Post. Host, this is Sarah Kaplan. Hi, this is Elahe Azadi with The Washington Post. Hey, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, July 8th. Today, what Black women want from Joe Biden, what to expect from the conventions, and divorce via video conference. For the past three years or so, I have really been focused on Black women, who we say are the backbone of the Democratic Party, right? But I really wanted to talk about what that meant, and especially what that means in this moment and headed into 2020. I'm Erin Haynes, and I'm editor-at-large at the 19th. Black women have frankly always been kind of the caregivers in America, right? And that's from slavery to Jim Crow to now. But but also, even before they were free and before they were able to vote, Black women recognized the power of the vote and fought twice as hard to get it. And so for all their hard work, I think that I'm hearing from them that we are now in a moment where they want that hard work to pay off for them with the party that they have been uh, the most loyal to uh, for, for more than a generation. When you say that Black women in America are the backbone of the Democratic Party and some of the most loyal party members, what does that actually mean from like a a demographic or like a numbers standpoint? So Black women make up about 7% of our population. But in the past five presidential cycles, Black women have turned out at a rate of at least 60% and sometimes even greater than that, right? So like far outvoting their numbers in terms of their population in our society. And in 2016, 94% of Black women voted for Hillary Clinton. They were the largest group to support her of any Democrats. And so, you know, I think what we're talking about is is that Black women, they go to the polls. They don't just go by themselves. They take their community. They take their sorority. They take their church. They take their friends. They take their family members. They don't just vote for themselves. They vote for their families, their community, their race, and their country. And there is a pretty commonly accepted idea within the Democratic Party that any path to a Democratic president right now goes through Black people and specifically Black women, that you can't win as a Democrat without them. Well, that has certainly proven to be the case uh, in this primary cycle where you saw Black women coming out in force in the primary. Even in the midst of a pandemic, you saw record turnout in some of the states that were voting during the coronavirus crisis. And a lot of that was Black women, right? And that's how you get Joe Biden as your presumptive Democratic nominee weeks ahead of schedule. And I think that the Biden campaign certainly seems to recognize that his path to victory, not just for this primary, but also in November, goes through Black women uh, who are central to his campaign, who he is considering as a possible running mate on his vice presidential ticket, and who he has pledged uh, you know, to put on the Supreme Court. And these are the kinds of things that really are more than symbolism for a lot of the Black women voters that I talk to. They think that, you know, Black women's leadership is something that is needed in this moment and, and, and not only something that they feel they are owed, but something that they feel that they have earned. 
For the Black women voters that you did talk to, what was your sense of what they're focused on right now and what they most want to see if Biden is elected president in November? So the Black women that I've been talking to for the past few years, really since the 2016 election, have really been pretty consistent in the idea that systemic racism is among their top priorities. It's either at or near the top for nearly all the Black women voters that I've spoken to. And so a lot of the issues that we find ourselves discussing amid this kind of national reckoning on race, right, are issues that Black women have been trying to sound the alarm on for years and want to see that now, those priorities translating into policy for them. I mean, yes, like a lot of voters in this country, the economy, healthcare, education, climate, those are things that matter to Black women, but racism is really on the ballot for them. And they are very much galvanized and energized around the idea of ousting President Donald Trump in the fall. And that is that is really uh, kind of the number one goal that I hear over and over again from a lot of Black voters and Black women in particular. So tell me about some of the conversations that you had with Black women voters about what they're thinking and doing and feeling right now ahead of the election. Well, I will tell you, you know, covering this primary, there was there was a person who stuck with me long after I, I had moved on from kind of the early primary contest. And, and that was Bernice Scott out of South Carolina. Uh, obviously, there was a lot of focus on South Carolina and the Black vote, right? But Bernice was just, I mean, she was a one-woman voter turnout machine. So when I go out there, uh, we go out there and we got a group and we split up the area and we go talk to people. Nine, nine and a half percent of the people understand. You got some people out there who don't want to vote. You got people who out there that don't care. She was uh, initially a surrogate for Kamala Harris, ended up being a surrogate for Joe Biden when Senator Harris dropped out of the race before the primary. But I mean, she is somebody who is is in her 70s, but, but you know, registered to vote and has been voting since she was a young woman and has been helping others to register in her community ever since. And, and so, you know, voting really a way of life for, for Miss Bernice. Our country is in very, very, very need of leadership, strong leadership, honest leadership, integrity. And really, she just typifies so many of the Black women of her generation who I know. I mean, as a Southerner, as as a Black woman, you know, not just covering politics, but who certainly is familiar with the culture of voting in my community, in my own family. She is somebody who who felt very familiar and really the perfect person to kind of set the scene for, for what I was trying to, to explain to readers about just how important and sacred uh, the vote is for, for Black women in this country. And does she feel that what she's seeing now is a permanent sea change in how the Democratic Party thinks about Black women voters as a voting bloc? Or is she worried that this is going to be kind of a a temporary nod to them during this election cycle and that there is a chance that we'll go back to kind of forgetting about Black voters generally and specifically Black women in terms of their importance to the party? 
Well, I think what Ms. Bernice was telling me when we spoke was that she's not going to let Vice President Biden forget should he become the next president of the United States, right? Like she has said in no uncertain terms, I want access to the White House, right? And when I asked her, you know, what do you want for all the hard work that you're doing? And she said, you know, I don't really want, it's not so much that I want anything for myself, right? Which is a typical black woman response. It's not for me. It is for my community. I live in a rural area. We need federal help. We need resources in my community. Like, I want uh, the vice president to do what he told me he was going to do when he was courting my vote. I want him to make good on that. So I think voters like Ms. Bernice are not leaving anything to chance when it comes to getting this administration elected. Like, if that is what happens, they plan to hold those people accountable so that, you know, not just uh, during campaign time, but but in terms of governing, like they still very much want a voice and they want to be valued just as much for their input as for their output. Aaron Haynes is editor-at-large at the 19th, a nonprofit newsroom covering gender, politics, and policy. Before the pandemic, the Democratic National Convention was supposed to be kicking off next week. What would that have looked like in normal times? In normal times, it would have been, you know, forty to 50,000 people flying from all over the world because you get a lot of international press and all over the country into Milwaukee, Wisconsin for sort of a week of bacchanalia with some political procedure filtered in, you know, a giant balloon drop cheering crowds, four nights of nationally syndicated television shows, lots of after parties, lots of before parties. So what is going to happen instead because of the pandemic? Nothing next week in Milwaukee. My name is Michael Shearer. I'm a national political reporter for The Washington Post. What is going to happen is that in the middle of August, Vice President Biden is going to convene a virtual event which will involve some part of appearing in Milwaukee, probably with a very limited crowd, and a bunch of pre-recorded video, and a bunch of live feeds from other parts of the country, and very few people. The delegates, which number 5,000 voting delegates in the Democratic Party, have been told not to come to Milwaukee. The press, which you know numbers 20,000 in a normal year, are mostly not going to be arriving. Thousands of other lobbyists, fundraisers, activists types who hold side events are not coming because they're not going to be side parties. And we're basically going to get a four-night TV show produced in part from Milwaukee, where Biden says he will be. And it'll involve a lot of the trappings of a normal convention, you know, the big speeches. But it's almost certainly not going to involve a balloon drop because to cover the balloons in Purell would just mean getting alcohol in everyone's eyes. <laughs> so obviously the way that the convention is going to happen this year is necessary because of the pandemic. But what are the costs to that? Like what is being lost by not being able to have all these people and party members gather in this one place for this thing that happens every four years? Well, it's a pep rally and it gets activists excited. It gets volunteers excited. It tends to get 
people locally excited. I mean, they picked Milwaukee, Wisconsin, because they thought they'd basically be able to recruit thousands, if not more than 10,000 activists and volunteers to go out and help win that state afterwards. And a lot of that's not going to happen. The televised spectacle tends to be still a very big deal because it gets about an hour of broadcast television coverage in addition to the cable network coverage every night. And that's reaching an audience that doesn't normally tune into politics. Whether they will tune into basically, you know, a a Zoom event with some, you know, pre-canned video role in the same way is is very much an open question. We don't know. It's never happened before. And and then the other part of it is I think it's a big networking opportunity. A lot of Democrats you talk to and Republicans as well, you say, where, where did you, you know, start getting interested in politics? And they'll say, oh, I was at the 1972 convention or I was at the 1980 convention or I was at the 1996 convention. These are sort of crucial points in a lot of political professionals' lives, moments where they really feel themselves plugged into the greater party. And, and, and that's just not going to happen on the Democratic side. And what do Democratic officials say about the fact that that there is going to be that loss of in-person contact and excitement and the opportunity for this pep rally? They say they're going to do their best to recreate it in a safe, socially distanced way. But in practice, for the moment, they believe it is more important to broadcast a contrast to President Trump right now as the country remain seized, you know, in the fifth month now by this viral pandemic. Vice President Biden and the Democrats want to show that they can be responsible and selfless in a way that President Trump and the Republican Party have not been so far. And they sort of see this now less as a traditional convention and more as an infomercial for that message. That Democrats, they're basically trying to say, look, we are the party of believing science and of careful decision making and of listening to public health policy. Yes, and of and of actual caring for health outcomes and and caring for voters. I mean, if voters' main concern right now is the economic and and health danger of this pandemic, they are marketing themselves as the party best able to address that. So then what is the Republican convention going to look like? So Trump is approaching this from a very different perspective. He has always seen mass rallies, large events as sort of a signature spectacle of his presidency, of his campaign. We saw him hold a a rally somewhat unsuccessfully in Tulsa, Oklahoma a couple weeks ago. And he is doing and he has told his staff to do everything they can to make the campaign look like it would have without the pandemic. For Republicans, going back to business as usual, going back to a growing economy and good news away from the bad news, that that's their message. That's what they're selling to the American people. And, and he's going to try and recreate that as much as possible in Jacksonville. And just being able to recreate that in person, that, that seems like that's proving a challenge for Republicans, because, of course, there are a lot of places that are saying, look, you should not be having in-person gatherings and certainly not having thousands of people crammed into one spot just because the president wants to do it. So how has that affected the latitude that Republicans have to pull this off the way that they want to? Uh, it's been difficult for them. They had spent years planning a rally in Charlotte, North Carolina. It's a very important place to me. I love North Carolina. In fact, my son, Eric, and Laura named a baby Carolina and came from, I think, both. But she was born in North Carolina, as you know, Laura. So it's a very important place to me. 
but at the same time, and I think the people understand this, we have a governor that doesn't want to open up the state. The Democratic governor there said it was unlikely they were going to be able to have a a full arena, a regular convention, given the situation, the health situation in that state. And he's a Democrat, and a lot of the Democrats, for political reasons, don't want to open up their states. And so at the last minute in early June, they basically started over and are trying to do in two and a half months what normally takes about two years to put together a quick convention celebration in Jacksonville. And that's all been complicated by the fact that the caseload in Jacksonville has really skyrocketed you know, increasing more than tenfold just over the last month. And and the city is basically returning to a spring shutdown mode. The businesses aren't closed, but bars are closed now. There's mandatory mask uh, rules in the city. And so the ability of the Republican Party to pull off their everything is normal, everything is all right celebration is is very much in doubt right now. And is there a real concern that that if this event does happen in Jacksonville the way that the president is planning for it to, that this could be a, a kind of event that caused a super spreading of coronavirus or it could ultimately end up with a lot of people sick? Well, so the CDC guidelines are th- that it is unwise and not recommended to have these kind of gatherings, large events. And it's definitely not recommended to have large events with lots of elderly people. And and lots of elderly people tend to be who come to these conventions, a lot of longtime Democratic and Republican operatives. That said, the RNC says they're taking extraordinary measures, some of which they've announced, some of which are going to be announced in the future. You know, one thing they announced actually this week was the idea that everyone who enters the perimeter around the arena in Jacksonville will be tested every day. Wow. They have not said how that test is going to work, how long it's going to take to get a result from that test, you know, how it is feasible to pull off. You know, if if you fill the Star Arena in Jacksonville, that's 15,000 people, so 15,000 tests a day. And what it means if, you know, out of 15,000 tests, you get, you know, say 25, 30 back that are positive. What do you do with that point? And they have emphasized after the president made clear at the beginning of the summer that he did not want a mask wearing or socially distanced event, the Republican National Committee sort of backed off that and, and said that they will follow whatever the public health guidelines. And if if the caseload in Florida, the hospitalizations in Florida continue like they have over the last month, it's very unlikely that President Trump is going to get at least an indoor version of the event he was hoping for uh, several weeks ago. You know, you talked about the historical importance of conventions and that people who would go to conventions in the 70s or 80s would get inspired by just the energy and, and the presence of being there. But I wonder if that is still the case now, that whether or not the conventions have that same role of importance within the party and within the presidential nomination process that they used to. You know, what's changed with the conventions, the biggest change is that there's no longer much suspense at these things. You know, we we haven't had a a contested convention in quite a long time. Everything is sort of pre-cooked before you get there. And the actual event tends to come off as a well-choreographed show, which is what it is. For decades, political leaders in both parties have sort of questioned the utility of conventions as these televised spectacles. That said, they remain major events. You know, as as big an event as happens in the presidential cycle next to probably the the debates that happened in the fall right before the the election. So it's still true that almost every time there are these conventions in recent decades, there are one or two moments that stand out that end up being sort of memorable, decisive factors in the campaign. 
last time we had the Khan family coming up and speaking about their lost son and President Trump immediately attacking them, which became a sort of turning point in that campaign. Donald Trump, you're asking Americans to trust you with their future. Let me ask you, have you even read the United States Constitution? If you remember the cycle before Clint Eastwood gave a long speech to a, a chair uh, on stage during Romney's nomination. So, Mr. President, how do you uh, how do you handle uh, how do you handle promises that you made when you were running for election? There's also been really, you know, decisive speeches that end up shaping the course of politics going forward. Was that the 2004 convention? in Boston that Barack Obama sort of had his coming out, giving a keynote address, which set up his nomination. Thank you so much. Thank you. For president four years later. My parents shared not only an improbable love, they shared an abiding faith in the possibilities of this nation. You know, the speeches at these events tend to matter. They tend to last. And there's a lot of jockeying in both parties to get key speaking slots uh, still. So... You know, even though they have diminished and even though their utility is kind of transforming, I do think they remain, you know, major moments for the public and the parties to sort of tune in and figure out who their candidate is, what they're selling, and what this election is all about. Michael Shear is a national political reporter for The Post. One more thing about what it's like to go through one of life's biggest changes via video conference. It took six minutes to get divorced at my dining room table. My new ex-husband sat across from me, holding my left hand. Our cream French bulldog sniffed around for crumbs underfoot. Six minutes to end an eight-year marriage. Poof. Done. All conducted over video conferencing software called Cisco Jabber for the Third Circuit Court of Tennessee. Tiana Clark is a poet and professor. She wrote an essay about her divorce for The Post, and we asked her to read an excerpt. I had to dress formally, though the hearing was online. I wore the divorce suit that I'd purchased months ago and that had lingered in the closet as the pandemic kept pushing back our original court date. The suit was simple, made of white linen. I wanted to feel formidable, even if I were on the verge of bawling. Before the call, I did my hair and applied my signature lipstick a bright matte blue-red. My lawyer sent me the instructions to download the software. I was to be ready 10 minutes before our call time at 9 a.m. She would send me an email when the county clerk called to allow us to enter the virtual courtroom. We were first on the docket. My virtual divorce felt dreamlike. Weeks later, I sometimes wonder whether it really happened. So much of dreaming feels like you're trying to grab the hem of something that dissipates right in front of you. Video conferencing has the same effect, inducing an exhausting sense of placelessness. I wanted the courtroom iconography, eagles maybe, a backdrop of dark mahogany wood. I wanted the formalities, the trappings. Instead, I had my lawyer's voice hovering in my speakers, 
her camera wasn't working, and the view of the judge and his black robe on the bench. I was sworn in and answered a series of questions that I'd reviewed ahead of time. A litany of yes, 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 yes. It's difficult not to look at yourself in these digital environments, and I kept glancing at the corner of the screen that showed my webcam's view. How many people get that kind of mirror during their divorce proceedings, showing their own faces in real time, making them witness as well as participant? Six minutes later, the judge clapped the gavel. I had my maiden name back, Knight. He joked that I should brag to my friends that I got divorced on TV. I was thankful for the moment of levity. My divorce was amicable, but still difficult. He and I were millennial church kids, filled with shame about our locked lower bodies. We were almost happy until we couldn't pretend anymore. We were so tired of carrying our personal crucifixions around our necks and calling that a marriage. But the process of officially separating was one long limbo. We made our decision in the summer of 2019, then had to wait six months to get residency status in Tennessee, where we'd recently moved. When we filed in February, that started the 60-day waiting period. Our court date was pushed back, then indefinitely postponed. For weeks, I had no idea when it would actually happen. There had been so much stalling. When it finally did, it happened so quickly that I barely processed it. After I closed my computer with a tiny click, my brand new ex-husband told me that he was glad he had married me and that he regretted nothing. I agreed and squeezed his hand. The contact felt like a novelty in such a touch-hungry time. We hugged, we fought, we made up, apologized, and walked our dog. It almost felt like any other day. But now we belonged only to ourselves. Friends called and texted saying congratulations. Later that day, I went on a socially distant walk with a friend, also going through a divorce, and we talked about Jack Gilbert's failing and flying. The poem compares the end of a marriage to the fall of Icarus and recasts the event as a triumph instead of a failure. But anything worth doing is worth doing badly. I bought myself flowers to give the occasion more tactility. Overpriced peach, pink, and white peonies that recently busted open from their tight-fisted buds into silky, luscious blooms of floral lace. Each morning since the divorce, I've gazed at the fluffy flowers and smirked while making my coffee. Just now, sadly, one started dropping loose peach petals with soft thuds on my desk. I googled how long peonies flower, seven to ten days. So brief in their beauty and delicate bloom. The pandemic has stretched out the days like saltwater taffy on a pulling machine, thick and cyclical. The present feels like a slow motion racquetball match. The players ricocheting the ball back and forth with echoing thwacks and annoying sneaker squeaks. Waves of pain hit me at random moments, like when I'm looking for a pre-sliced pineapple pack at Publix wearing black gloves that my mother mailed me with a note that read, be safe, you are loved, you are wise. Waves of thankfulness overwhelm me too. The official court proceedings have not brought me out of my seesawing state of transition, and perhaps they never had that power in the first place. I tip back and forth between grief and gratitude, thwack, thwack, buffering, and blossoming on repeat. I'm still confronting that difficult gift of loneliness. I keep repeating and rubbing lines from Rilke like rosary beads in my brain. I love the dark hours of my being. Then I know that there is room in me for a second huge and timeless life. Back to my maiden name in mere minutes. Sometimes there is still a terrified bride inside me, afraid to walk down the next aisle in my life. Tiana Clark is a poet and professor. You can find a link to this full essay at postreports.com. 
Tiana's most recent book of poetry is called I Can't Talk About the Trees Without the Blood. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. If you've got thoughts about a story on today's episode, send us an email at postreports at washpost.com. Or you can always DM me on Twitter. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.